said, yeah, yeah, by tax. I said, who is this? I said, Zeke, can you teach tonight? I said, well, not very well, but I'll give it a <laughs> shot and do the best I can. Uh, I said, I'm sick. feel okay, but I just don't want to strain my voice. So anyway, here we are. I'm back with you. For those who don't know me, if, if anybody out there doesn't know me, my name's Mark Matthews, and I've done a, a few teachings up here. So uh, tonight, uh, we're going to do a little bit different than what I've done in the past. We're going to actually start a book tonight. We're going to go through an introduction and uh, first chapter of the book of Ruth. But before we do that, let's open in prayer. Let's, let's hold our pastor up in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and present ourselves before you, Lord, to to worship you as we just have in, in music and in praise, Lord. And, uh, Father, as we will soon be worshiping you in the study of your word, we now want to come and worship you and pray in prayer, Lord. And uh, just ask, Father, <clears throat> to start out with, we just ask for our pastor, Zeke. Lord, we just ask that you would touch him and touch his voice, touch his body. Take whatever this thing is away from him, Lord. He's been fighting for the last week. And he's got a big weekend and the Christmas Eve uh, study coming up on the project coming up on Tuesday, Lord. So he's got a big, uh, a big uh, plate in front of him, Father. So <clears throat> I would just pray that you would just touch him and just put your healing hand upon him, Lord. And just, again, whatever this is, just take it away from him, Father, and just cast it into the darkness. And, and Lord, any of the others uh, that may be involved, any of our brothers and sisters that are involved in this, especially the Christmas Eve uh, program, Father, we just ask a hedge of protection upon their health, Lord. Just protect them, and Lord, let not uh, any of this stuff come near them. And then we just pray again for this weekend and for the, the Christmas Eve service. It would just be a blessing and a, a mighty work for your kingdom, Lord. And we just thank you again for tonight, this opportunity to just come before you. I just pray for each of us here. Lord, I pray you would touch our hearts and our minds in uh, our ears, Lord, that we would hear the message that you have for us. I pray especially for myself, Lord, that what I bring forth would just be uh, pleasing to you, Lord, and be your pure word. So, Father, just go before us now. Let your spirit go before us, and as your word has promised us, he will lead us into all truth. Just lead us now, Lord, in the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, <clears throat> a while back I was talking to Zeke, and we mentioned a I might be doing some uh, filling in for him on occasions when he couldn't be here and he was sick, and we kind of discussed a, a few things that I might teach on. And <clears throat> I asked him, uh, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable uh, doing the book of Ruth tonight. Uh, I don't think you guys have probably studied it in quite a while. As a matter of fact, uh, I felt real comfortable when I asked Zeke about doing the book of Ruth, and he said, there's a book called Ruth? Uh, <laughs> no, he really didn't say that. But he did admit he'd never taught on it, and I haven't taught on it for about five years, so uh, we'll give it a shot tonight and see what happens. I I was down the hill most of the day today. Uh, after I got his call, I had to go down the hill for an appointment and didn't get back till about 4.30, so I'm, I'm kind of doing a rehash of one I did about five years ago, so we'll see how it turns out. So anyway, if you would, uh, turn to your in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Uh, if you're not sure where Ruth is located, she's right between Judges and, and 1 Samuel. 
so that's where you'll find it. Uh, Ruth is one of only two books of the Bible named after women. The other one is the book of Esther. The time of the writing, we're going to do, actually we're going to do an introduction and we'll hopefully get through chapter one tonight. The time of the writing of the book of Ruth is really uh, not known. Uh, oral tradition says that it was written possibly in the golden age of Israel in either Solomon or David's reign. Time really doesn't matter. It is a part of Holy Scripture. So no matter when it was written, it's, it's been included in the Holy Scriptures. Some believe that Ruth herself may have been the author or that perhaps the author was Samuel since it includes a genealogy of David as an appendage to the book in the, in the very end of the book. It is considered a liter, literary masterpiece for its beauty and literary, literary construction and is required reading in many liter, literature uh, regimens. How do we know this isn't just fiction? Well, Ruth was one of the four women named in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 1. The entire list of women there includes Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And uh, you might remember that story from Genesis. Uh, Judah it really has to deal with Leverite marriages, really. And uh, in, that, in the story... Uh, Judah had given his first two sons to Tamar, his husbands, and they both died. So he wasn't too crazy. The Leverite marriage required him to give his third son to her as husband also. But since the first two had died, he didn't think they had a very good track record. So he wasn't very excited about this idea. So uh, Tamar went, and uh, she, to show him the error of his ways, she went and dressed herself as a prostitute and got him to come in to, under her, and she got pregnant. And uh, after time passed, and it saw, they saw that she was pregnant, um, they brought her before Judah, and uh, she had gotten his staff as a down payment as a prostitute for, for uh, pleasuring him. So Judah was about to stone her, and he said, who is thy father? And she took his staff as a signet ring, actually, and said, you are. You know, because he had not done his duty under the the, uh, the Leverite marriage. And we're going to touch on that when we get into some further chapters in Ruth. But it was a pretty seedy uh, um, episode. But anyway, that's that's who Tamar is. She's one of the four women. Uh, the other one is, uh, the second one is Rahab. If you remember Rahab from Jericho. She was the prostitute who hung the red th uh, thread on her window. And her and her family were spared when Jericho fell. Um, <clears throat> she is also the mother of Boaz. And we're going to come across Boaz uh, in, the, in the book here. The third one is, of course, Ruth. And lastly, the fourth woman is Bathsheba, who is not directly named but referred to as she who was the wife of Uriah in Matthew uh, uh, chapter 1. And... Uh, you might remember that story. That's an interesting story, too. Uh, if you remember who Uriah was, he was one of David's mighty men. And Bathsheba was his wife. And while the army was away fighting, David saw Bathsheba as she was bathing herself on her roof. Now, why she was bathing herself on the roof is a whole different question. But 
he saw her and he longed for her and he brought her unto himself and he had sex with her and she got pregnant. And if you remember the story, uh, David then conspires to have her husband Uriah murdered to cover his sin. So that's who Bathsheba was. And uh, that's, you know, that's a, that's a story that we really need to take to heart because uh, I don't know about you, but have you ever backslidden and been in a place where you thought you'd just done something so terrible, so, so ungodly and so awful that God just could not forgive you or love you anymore? I think, I think a lot of us have been in that position. And if I ever get there, I always think of David. You know, here David was an adulterer a murderer to cover his sin, and yet God forgave him and called David a man after his own heart. That's something to keep in mind. That's deep stuff. So, you know, how far does God's grace and mercy extend, especially to those who are called his? There's no bounds on it. Now, does that give us a license to sin? No, of course it doesn't. As a matter of fact, that should prevent us from sinning. But that just shows you the depth and scope of God's mercy, especially for those he calls his own. But those were the four women. <clears throat> now, if you note, the two, uh, two of them are um, Hebrew and two of them are Gentile. And the two Hebrew women, one played the prostitute and the other one was an adulteress. Of the two Gentiles, one was a prostitute. So then leaves one more, and that's Ruth. Ruth, the Gentile bride of a Jewish nobleman. And that is a picture, of course, she's a picture of the church as the bride of Christ. And she was totally untarnished. So that's also a little Bible study there you can keep for yourself. Uh, the book of Ruth takes place during the period of the judges in Israel, which lasted from 1380 B.C., which was the death of Joshua, to 1050 B.C., and that's when Saul became king. It was a time, <coughs> excuse me, I'm at the tail end of what Zeke's got. Uh, it was a time of extreme spiritual and moral decay in Israel. There were some 13 judges over Israel. They were sort of quasi-leaders of Israel. They would judge in the matters of the people. Some of them were leaders during times of war. They were leaders in a sense, but never fully empowered by the people as rulers. They were kind of interim leaders during an interim period between Joshua and the establishing of a monarchy, at which time Saul became the first king over Israel. So, so the book of Judges covers this period of time between the death of Joshua and the coming of Samuel, who was the final judge over Israel and who anointed Saul to be the first king over Israel. Now it was here that their form of government changed from a theocracy, that is where God was ruling over the people because that was God's ideal, uh, changed from a, a theocracy um, to a monarchy. Now the theocracy was not a successful period simply because the people would not submit to the kingship of God. They just rejected him as God. The reign of Jesus will also be a theocracy. So we as believers are really, uh, we're not Democrats or Republicans or Independents. We're actually theocrats waiting for the coming king and the God of all creation to establish his kingdom and his government. 
Before we get to Ruth, there are two sets of verses that I want to take us to in the books, book of Judges. So if you would, let's uh, first turn to Judges chapter 2. We'll start in verse 7 and read verses 7, 8, and 9. <clears throat> it says, So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all of the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnath, Harris, in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Ganesh. We're going to go to verse 10. And I believe that verse 10 is one of the saddest verses in the scriptures and really captures Israel's situation at this time. Judges 2:10. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers... Another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. <clears throat> As a result of verse 10, that whole period can be summed up in the very last verse of the book of Judges. If you would, turn to Judges 21:25. There it says this. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That almost sounds like something that could be said about America today, doesn't it? Everybody's pretty independent in their actions. Um, <clears throat> Americans as a people, or at least those in positions of leadership, seem to have forgotten the blessings that God has showered on our nation, even the miracle of it becoming a nation at all. So it is during this dark time in Israel, which I think is, is pretty close to what we're living in today, this time of religious apostasy, moral corruption, and political anarchy that the book of Ruth takes place. The theme of the book. Okay, we've been through enough of the negative stuff. Now let's talk about some good stuff. The book of Ruth is anything but negative. It is a beautiful story of love, loyalty, and redemption. Uh but also a book of prophecy in the form of a typology. Now, uh, hopefully everyone knows what a type or a similitude is. A type is an anticipatory analogy, a picture or an illusion with a hidden meaning. meaning. One definition is the interpretation of some characters and stories in the Old Testament as allegories foreshadowing the New Testament. In other words, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of something that's going to be, take place in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full of typologies or symbols, if you like, foreshadowing Jesus Christ. Uh, Hosea 12.10, uh, God says, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols or similitudes through the witness of the prophets. The King James Version calls these similitudes. Psalm 47, as well as, uh, which is uh, restated again in Hebrews 10:7, tells us this. It says, Then I said, Behold, I came, and the, and the scroll of the book is written of me. What does that mean? That's telling us that the volume of the Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is a 
points to Jesus Christ. You go through the, the books of Moses, they all point to Jesus Christ. You go through the Feast of Israel, they all point to Jesus Christ. Everything in the, in the book of the, in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Uh, the offering of Isaac in Genesis 22 is a type of the offering of Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus even referenced uh, types of himself as he did in Matthew 12:40, where he said, uh, he said this, he said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, talking about his death and resurrection. So even there, Jesus was referring back to a type of him in the Old Testament, a type that was foreshadowed by Jonah. <clears throat> so that's it's, it's really a, the, the whole book of Ruth is a is a is a type of the, the relationship between Jesus Christ and His Church. The book of Ruth is a book about love, a love that keeps its promises. Romans fifteen four says this: It says, "For whatever things were written before, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope." The book of Ruth was written for us as the church to give us hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is often referred to as the romance of redemption, a story of love and restoration, a type or a picture, if you will, of Jesus redeeming his church and God redeeming the whole world through his son, salvation for all people through Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike. And Gentiles were not an afterthought, but they were right there from the beginning. In Genesis 12:1, we're told this. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not only Abraham's natural Jewish family, but all families, the Gentile families. <clears throat> Ruth is also a great little book because it's a springboard from which to look at a number of biblical subjects, such as the role of the kinsman redeemer or who, the goel, if if you've heard that phrase before. He was a defender of family rights in, in uh, Israel society. The Goel leads us to the cities of refuge, and we will touch on how they relate to the church. We'll also see the law of redemption called out in the book of Ruth. Uh, see, being redeemed from poverty, spiritual poverty, to, to spiritual wealth. It also leads us to explore one reason why Jesus had to become a man a human being. There was a reason in the law. There's a reason in the, in the scriptures why Jesus could not be born of Joseph's blood. And we will, we will look at that uh, when we get to that part. And again, all this is a type or model of Christ and his church. Uh, we'll also look at what a Leverite marriage is all about. The book of Ruth is, is very heavy in, in teaching on the Leverite marriage. And that doesn't have anything to do with the Levites, so don't let that confuse you. 
it's a word that really, it's a, it's a, a law that really has to do with uh, the law of inheritance in, in Israel. Uh, so we'll look at a Levite marriage <clears throat> and see what that's about. So the book of Ruth is a study of many things, a place to get into many different subjects of the Bible. So let's start with chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, that land there is Israel. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. I have a trouble with that name, Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion also died, so the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Verse 1 speaks of there being a famine uh, in Israel. Uh, there are 13 famines actually listed in the Bible. Famines often indicate the moral condition of a country, especially uh, when we look at uh, the history of Israel. And often they were a judgment uh, of spirit for spiritual idolatry or disobedience. So God used famine as a form of chastisement. Amos 8.11 also even speaks of a, a famine of the hearing of the word of God. It says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. So a famine in the land of Israel. And I think they have that today in Israel. I think today Israel is going through a spiritual famine. Um, most of the people in Israel um, are either agnostics or atheists, certainly secular, and, and most of them have absolutely no interest in spiritual things. So I think there's a famine going on there right now. So famine is sometimes used of God to accomplish God's purposes. It says, And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Moab is located east of the Dead Sea, uh, uh, they were uh, an idol-worshipping Gentile people. They had a really bad beginning. Uh, actually, uh, Moab came out of the incest between Lot and his daughters. And you can read uh, about that in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 37. Uh, really another sordid uh, story. Uh, when Lot was uh, taken out of uh, Sodom, he fled to the mountains, if you remember, and um, his daughters then, seeing that there was no other men around, um, got their father intoxicated and then went and, and laid with them. And uh, it resulted in the birth of the, of the Moabites and the Ammonites, Moab and Ammon, both born of incest. And, and they became very messed up people because of that. All through the scriptures, if you look at the Moabites and the Ammonites, you see, they were a, they were a nasty, pretty nasty lot. 
uh, Lot himself was a pretty messed up guy, so, so you know, they really didn't have a very good chance at all, even right from the beginning. But even with all this, Lot is still called just and righteous in Second Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. So even with all that he did and, and what his daughters did and what his grandchildren did, he was still covered by Christ's righteousness. Again, God's mercy. We, we, really don't, we really don't understand God's mercy, I don't think. We don't understand the depth, the length, the breadth, and the height of it. Uh, his mercy is just wonderful. But God didn't like the Moabites. Moab wouldn't let Israel pass through during the exodus from Egypt, if you, if you remember that story from the book of Exodus. Balak, who was king of Moab, sent Balaam to curse the Israelites. Balaam was a prophet. And, and again, you can go back and, and read that story. It's an interesting story. Uh, but Balaam could not curse them because God told him not to. So what did Balaam do? Because he wanted to get the money that uh, Balak was offering him. So Balaam came up with a plan to introduce idolatry into Israel. He did it by getting the Israelites to intermarry with the Moabites, and that uh, introduced uh, idolatry. So what's uh, the story for us there? Don't be unequally yoked. Solomon, uh, he began as the wisest king in the world. He ended up in apostasy. Uh, why? Well, because of his wives. He took wives from every... I mean, he had... He had 300 wives and 700 concubines, and they were, most of them were marriages of uh, convenience. They were, they were marriages of state, really, but still, he was greatly influenced by them and ended up worshiping and following their gods, and it really led him into apostasy at the end of his life. So we're not to be unequally yoked together. And that's not just marriage. That covers partnerships, friendships, whatever. Uh, don't be mixing things of God with things of the world. Just be careful in that area. We can't partake of the things of the world and expect to excel in the things of God. It just doesn't work. You remember the scriptures, uh, you, can, you can't serve God and mammon. You have to serve one and the other. Uh, Moab always uh, was a constant is, uh, enemy of Israel. They finally became servants under David's reign when he conquered them and made them servants. Moabites were barred from the congregation, political leaders, for ten generations. And we'll see a little bit about that later. Uh, there are still spiritual Moabites today trying to pervert the people of God, so be careful out there. In verse 1, Elimelech left property in Israel. He sold it or lost it to the debt. But more than that, he left God. He went out from God's presence to greener pastures, at least what he thought were going to be greener pastures. What he ended up doing was dying there, him and his sons, as we're going to see. Um, <clears throat> verse 2 uh, names uh, Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion. And I want to look at the meaning of these names. Elimelech means to whom God is king. Well, God wasn't king, was he? Because if he was, he never would have left Israel. Naomi is my pleasantness or my delight. Man and Chilean, they really got the short end of the stick. Malian means sick or sickly. And Chilean means pining away or puny. 
Oh, how would you like to be named that? Uh, they started out with two strikes against him right from the beginning. Uh, in the New Testament, we have John and James, sons of thunder. Uh, here we have uh, Maon and Chilion, sons of sickness, I guess we could call them. In verse 3, we have the death of Elimelech. He passes away. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4 it says, Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, uh, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Moabite wives were not prohibited in the law, but offspring were barred for ten generations from entering the temple or being leaders in Israel. Oprah means gazelle, and Ruth means friendship. They stayed there for ten years, so this was not a casual trip. I mean, they went there thinking it was going to be permanent. Verse 5, Maon and Chilion died. Very serious for Naomi and the women because they now had no means of support. And in that society, if a woman lost her male means of support, she usually had two avenues open to her. She could be a beggar or she could be a prostitute. So this was very, very serious stuff for both Naomi and the two ladies. Let's read uh, verses 6 to 14. It says, Then she arose, this is Naomi, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. So in other words, the famine was over in Israel. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Verse 9, The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters. For it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. <clears throat> so Naomi heard that the famine was over and she was going to return to Israel and was releasing her daughters-in-law to go and find new husbands. Verse 9 speaks of rest. The rest that she's talking about there is uh, the security found in marriage. So she's telling these two young girls, go back, go back to your own people. Find husbands of your own tribes and find rest, find security, find a marriage for yourselves. She could not bear sons for them to marry, and even if she could, would they wait for them to be grown? That wasn't, that wasn't feasible. 
She felt that the hand of the Lord was against her due to her circumstances. And we get that way too sometimes, don't we? When we have things come against us. Sometimes just things that happen and we think, wow, you know, the Lord must be angry with me or must be against me. But, you know, we shouldn't think that way. Uh, anyway, she told them to go back, but nevertheless, Ruth clung to her. She wouldn't return. Verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 says, And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts you and me. So in verse 15... Orpah makes a decision to return to her home and people. But more than that, she decides to return to idolatry. Yeah, that's, that's a picture of, uh, in a sense, that can be a picture of uh, unbelievers. Uh, a lot of unbelievers will, will tell you that, you know, they love Jesus, and, you know, they, they really want to follow Jesus. And they really intend to follow Jesus. And, you know, that's what Orpah did. She intended to go with Naomi. She really wanted to go with but she didn't follow through and go with Naomi. That's the same with unbelievers. You can, an unbeliever can want to follow Jesus and have plans to follow Jesus, but if they don't follow Jesus, they're lost. So it's a little Bible study right there. Verses 16 and 17 give us some of the most beautiful writing in Scripture. Ruth swears her allegiance to Naomi and to Naomi's God. She gave her loyalty fully. In other words, she put her faith in the God of Israel. <coughs> she was in it for the long haul. There'd be no turning back for her. She was resolute in her faith. Ruth abandoned her homeland, her family, and the gods of her people because of her love for Naomi and her faith in the God of Israel. <coughs> And we do, don't we do the same thing when we turn to Jesus? Should we be any less re resolute or should we have faith like Ruth? Oftentimes when we come to the Lord, we do turn our backs on, uh, sometimes we have to turn our backs on our families and our friends. Most assuredly, if, if we're unbelievers and come to the Lord, we're going to lose most of our friends that don't come to the Lord also. Sometimes we even lose our families. But uh, you know what? We just have to just keep going. We can't let that be a hindrance to us. She says, if anything but death parts you and me, not even death will part us from Jesus. It will bring us into his presence. Have you ever wondered why evangelical Christians are so linked, linked with Jews and with Israel? I believe that the reason is found in these verses. Ruth forever linked the Gentile church, the Gentile bride of Christ, to Israel. <clears throat> Let's read those verses once more, only this time. Look at it as a vow between the church and Israel. 
Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. The church and Israel, I believe, are forever linked by a common destiny. Both will spend eternity in the presence of the one true living God. I'm going to finish kind of early tonight. Uh, let's read verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 says, When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the, women, and the women said, It is Naomi. But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 18... Naomi stopped speaking to Ruth. She wasn't mad or angry. She had just finally resigned herself to the fact that Ruth was coming with her no matter what. In verse 19, when Naomi gets back to Israel, it says that Naomi was recognized after 10 years. That indicates that before she left, her and her family were very prominent and known there. And verse 20, Naomi was bitter at God for what had transpired. We often also do that sometimes. We, get, we can get bitter at God. We can get mad at God. We can think God has deserted us. Sometimes in our relationship with God, we, we get the feeling distant. And we think God has moved away from us and left us hanging out there by ourselves. I know that because I felt that at times. But when we feel those things, we have to remember one thing. If we feel distant from God, it's not God who moved. God never moves. If we feel distant from God, it's we who've moved. And then we need to move back. And that's what Naomi's doing here. Even though she's feeling bitter, she's still moving back to God. Verse 21, she said she went out full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. She's blaming God for circumstances caused by her own choices. She went out full and came back empty. Who else did that? Who else went out full and came back empty? The prodigal son, didn't he? Let's read Luke 15, starting in verse 11. We're going to read about the prodigal son. <coughs> Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. Then he said, this is Jesus. Then Jesus said, he's given a, uh, he's given a, uh, here. he said, a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. 
And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and that citizen sent him into his fields to feed swine. Here's a son of Israel feeding swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, but no one would give him anything. This guy's pretty destitute. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, this is beautiful. When he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as the son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make Mary be God, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. The word prodigal in the King James Version means riotous, lavish, or wasteful. The wasteful son. The son left and wasted his inheritance. And after he did, he found himself to be in want. The Greek word there is hysterio. It means devoid, also to be left behind in a race, to fall short in the end. He was left with nothing. That kind of reminds us of 1 Corinthians 9.24, where Paul likened our walk to a race. And he said, so run that you may obtain. We don't want to fall short in the end. His son didn't. He came back. One thing to note here. Although the son left and wasted his inheritance, The son never lost his sonship. He was always a son, no matter where he was. 
even was he was in that pig pen feeding the pigs, he was still a son of God. So that's the uh, parable uh, of the prodigal son. And we know that's a parable because, uh, well, we know the difference between a parable and an actual event. Actual event uses names. Parables do not use names. <clears throat> the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 and 19 is an actual event. That's not a parable. Jesus is telling of an actual event where Lazarus rent to the, uh, to the bosom of Abraham, to the good part of it, and the rich man went to the other part, the not-so-good part of it. Uh, a question, why didn't Jesus use the rich man's name there in that story? I think it's because of Matthew 7.21. If you remember Matthew 7.21, especially from our, our study, uh, summer study uh, on the kingdom of heaven, what does uh, 7.21 say? It says, many will come to me in that day and say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done this? Have we not done that? Have we not fed the, uh, the hungry and, and healed the sick and visited those in prison? And what does Jesus say to him? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. I think the reason he doesn't use a rich man's name in Luke 16 is because of Matthew 7:21. He never knew him. He didn't know him. Did he know his name? Of course he did. But he never knew him in the spiritual sense. Uh, so I believe that's why he didn't use the rich man's name. Scripture always testifies the scripture. So, back to Ruth. Luke 15 gives us the prodigal son. Ruth gives us the prodigal family. Who's another prodigal in scripture? Israel, isn't it? Israel often went out from God full and returned empty. You can see that in the book of Judges, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, uh, all the prophets, Hosea. We see the, the harlot's wife. Israel's called a harlot. Uh, Israel uh, uh, goes out full and often comes back spiritually empty. And I believe Israel today is extremely spiritually empty. But uh, it's not going to be for long. Soon they'll be spiritually full. Verse 22 talks about the barley harvest. That's the first harvest of the year, and that's followed by the wheat harvest about 50 days later. And what is that uh, typical of? Jesus was the first fruits, the barley, around Passover time. And then came the wheat harvest, Pentecost. That's where the church was formed. So again, another little type there of, uh, <coughs> of the New Testament. So anyway, that's the first chapter of the book of Ruth. We'll stop there tonight. Um, and I'm hoping that this will inspire you guys to read through the book of Ruth. Get familiar with it. There's a lot of good stuff in there. It's a little book. It's, it's just full, though, of, uh, of foreshadowings and prophecy, and it's just a, it's just a great book. It just, if you have never read it or never studied it on your own, try it. See what you get out of it. I think you'll find some real nuggets in there. So if you would, let's stand and pray. <clears throat> Father, we just want to come before you and thank you once again, Lord, for this opportunity to come before you and worship you in song and in praise and in prayer and in your word. 
And before we go tonight, Lord, we just one more time want to hold up our pastor Zeke to you, Lord, and just pray for your healing presence to be with him. I thank you for this time tonight. I thank you for going before us. I thank you for your word. I thank you for all the the nuggets you've hidden in there for us to seek out and search. And I just pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we would just diligently seek out your word and, and learn those things that you have for us. I just want to pray for each one here tonight, Lord, as the, the weather is treacherous out there. I just pray for uh, uh, traveling mercies on the way home. And uh, Father, once again, we just want to thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your presence. And we thank you for your time here with us. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I don't know if we have prayer teams tonight, but if you need prayer, come down and somebody will come pray with you.